This is the Ignition Podcast and I'm Harry. If you're listening, I know that one way or another you love cars. It may have started early or you're just dipping your toe into the vast car world. Regardless of that, here I speak to people I, as a petrolhead, find inspiring, interesting and entertaining to dive into what got them to where they are today. So, thank you for being here and join me on my journey to becoming the number one automotive podcast in the world. It's okay to talk, right? Well, Tacona is a brand that's changing mental health awareness. I have always been one that's found it hard to talk and that my feelings, well, they weren't exactly best spoken. Once I found Tacona and learned more about what Lewis does, I was amazed that a clothing brand is making people aware just with one simple logo. If you see a Tacona t-shirt, a shirt, a cap, a hat, a sticker, whatever it is, you know that person knows it's okay to talk. And because they want to help spread the message, Tacona is giving us 10% off. So if you listen to this podcast, in the show notes below will be a link to the website. And if you use code IGNITION10, you get 10% off store-wide products. So enjoy and enjoy the rest of the episode. Getting a job in F1 is one of the hardest things you can do. The people you need to know, the skills you need to have, and the determination you need to possess are insane. So, what is it like being the one to make the deals? Getting to travel all over the world, meeting the teams, and making partnerships that will fund the races we all love to see. Well, thanks to our guest, Tim Sylvie, you'll hear from behind the scenes on what he does and why it is so crucial to the future of motorsport. And then my first day at state school, I remember walking and, and just thinking, what is this place? Like everyone looked threatening to me. Everyone looked terrifying. Zero ability. I think I left school with five or six GCSEs um, and went to, went to college. At this point, no idea what I wanted to do was, I want to wear a suit. I want to go to London. Um, and impress my my mum and dad and my mates. But it, you know, as a young bloke in a different country, um, English, uh, you know, surrounded by Americans, again, it opened my eyes to a new culture, a new way of living. I've spent quite a bit of time in Saudi as well, which has been interesting. My boss called and said, there's this girl, she's stuck in China and you have to escort her home and bring her back to the UK. So I was like, okay. Thought, well, this is it. Tim, can you just explain who you are and what do you do? Sure. Um, so I'm Tim Sylvie. Um, what I do is, is a few different hats. I'm a I'm a, a sports marketing um, and sponsorship consultant, uh, a podcaster. Um, I'm a company owner, consultant. Um, what else? I, I did have a, a bar, but we've sold that. We had a little mobile bar. Not, it sounds extravagant. It's not. It's like a small horse box bar. Um, that we recently sold because <clears throat> we do some bits and pieces in weddings, um, and mm. um, and and most recently we're we're starting to um, deal in super yachts and um, private planes for Formula One events. So that's our, our latest little venture um, outside of the the podcasting stuff, which is becoming more and more of a focus for us. Oh, cool! That's uh, something I didn't know about, so I have to ask you a few questions about that. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, but this is the this is the first sort of. I guess the first feature that's going to be in the online members club. So I guess we'll thank you for being the guinea pig for this. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. <laughs> the, the first question I have for you is for those that don't know, what is, what is sports sponsorship and, and what do you do effectively? So um, I, I've worked in um, Formula One sponsorship mostly um, with a little bit of golf and a few other sports like um, Formula E, um, a bit of athletics, but, but mainly Formula One and, and most forms of most sport. And, um, sports sponsorship very simply is um, the exchange of assets um, between a rights holder um, and a, a, a brand. And usually the brand will provide some form of payment, whether that's value in kind or whether that's cash. And in return, they'll get a whole load of assets from the rights holder, which could be a football club or a Formula One team. And they'll provide um, the brand with a, with a load of assets that they can turn into Marcoms content basically um and then usually that that brand will go and find a sports marketing agency to activate that for them and make best use of those assets so that they can fulfill whatever business objective or or, or brand narrative or selling products whatever it is that they want to do when you say activate what did you do specifically what, what did you activate in that in that space i did a lot of work with um epsom who make printers and they were a, mm. a, a big sponsor of the mercedes formula one team so um a, a lot of their focus was around their dealer network so 
Epson make printers. They sell them in stores, their dealers. So they would do a lot of entertaining those dealers to make sure that their dealers continue to stock Epson products and sell more of them and are incentivized to sell more. So we do a lot of hospitality and event-based activations for them. So we'd go to the Singapore Grand Prix and have a, you know, hire a poolside area to have an amazing party. And Lewis would come along and we'd show off Epsom's technology and, um, you know, get special guests in. And then we'd take them to the racetrack and do more hospitality there. And it's lots of handshakes and champagne and, you know, that kind of uh, hospitality interaction. But then for other brands um, like Genpax, who I work with, who sponsored a Formula E team, um, they would be much more focused around um, showcasing their digital technology and um, digital prowess by creating wonderful content or, um, you know, doing online digital activities or virtual events and so on and so forth. So it really depends on the brand. Um, but um, activation is really just a catch-all for, um, for doing the marketing with the assets that you get from the team. Marketing's word I've heard a lot, but what, what would the sort of the guess the skills or what did you need going into that job that, you know, the industry kind of needed you to have? It's wide and varied. I mean, some people come into it with, with a marketing degree, which obviously has a, has an advantage, but others come into it like me with, with not a, not a great deal apart from just experience, but, um, to, to do marketing in my world, which is motorsport, it's, it's, uh, it's hard work, you know, it's long hours. Um, it's not glamorous, despite what many people might think. Um, you have to be extremely creative. You know, you've only got a small amount of assets to leverage and you've got to make sure that you, you leverage those assets. And when I say assets, I mean, things like time with the racing drivers, photography assets, video assets, tickets, you know, these things that the race team give you to, to go and play with. Um, so you have to be very creative because there's only so much you can do with a race ticket or with half an hour of, I don't know, Fernando Alonso's time, you know, you've got to be really creative and think outside the box. So it's, it's a difficult space to work in. Um, budgets can often be challenging. So you've got to be adaptable and creative, um, forward thinking and hardworking because there's a lot of weekend work, lots of hours put in. Um, but I don't think there's a, you know, a certain type that you need to be. I think you just need to have, have something about you, have some good soft skills because it's a small place, the Formula One paddock and, if you don't have the right people skills, you'll you'll quickly get found out. That makes sense. You as you mentioned the uh, the bar that you run, and that's clearly the thing that you've got there is that the relationship building and that you know the ability to speak to people because it's a this is an underrated skill that most people you know wouldn't, wouldn't know they had if they didn't use it. Yeah, I I think soft skills are are underrated generally. Um, I mean, I've I've said before in other podcasts that I've basically lived my life off soft skills. I don't have an awful lot else to offer. You know, I don't have qualifications really. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't academic. Um, I think without the soft skills and the ability to converse and network and and work with people um, and get on with people, I think without that, I'd be I'd be in all sorts of bother. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. Did you did you actively practice those soft skills? Did you know you were like you were practicing when you did it? Or did you just kind of just do the job? And I guess you, you um, they grow with the job itself. Yeah, I, d I didn't really, I, I didn't practice or anything. I've always been quite, conf not confident, but I wasn't confident at all as a youngster, but I, I've always been chatty. I can always hold a conversation with people. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that have led to that. Um, I went to private school very young and left when I was 13 and went to a pretty rough state school. And I think that sort of having to adapt to fit in as, you know, the posh boy that suddenly turned up um, and having to adapt the way I was to make sure that I wasn't ridiculed for the, you know, the next five years, um, that those sorts of experiences, I think helped me and, um, you know, doing different bits and pieces in work and, you know, going to the middle East relatively young, going traveling young, you know, doing things a lot on my own. Um, I think that there was, I sort of had to learn how to, how to converse with people and, and network and, find people and find ways to engage with people that meant I could, you know, better myself. But I, I think, um, that's all put me in quite good stead for my career. And engaging, engaging people to better yourself. Is there anything in your career that you think you've made the most impact or difference and change to your, you know, your progress? I think the first big change was probably in 2000 and, um, it's about 2008 towards the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, um, when Yasmarina circuit, which is in Abu Dhabi and is a formula one circuit, it was the first year, 2009, that they had a race there. And I was set, I was working for a sports marketing agency and I was sent out there, um, on my own, um, 
very, very young to manage a traffic and transportation plan for the race circuit, um, oh, well. which I knew nothing. Okay. I knew nothing about traffic or transportation. And they were ba- I turned up and Richard Cregan, the CEO, was like, right, uh, what's the plan? And, and I had no idea what the plan was, but m- my my function was to basically work as part of the venue management team, one of the, the one of the first people in the business to go, right, we'll have a, a screening area there we'll have a car park here we need to drop a curb there so that the disabled access is all right we need a roundabout there we need pedestrian access there Ten thousand cones you know five thousand cars a load of buses and it was my job to to make all that happen and i didn't know what i was doing so that it was a proper sink or swim moment and i felt extremely alone very far from home i felt pretty ridiculed by the people i was working with and had to adapt really quickly before I sunk into a pit of depression and and gradually managed to learn and get my get through it, but it was the hardest year of my life um, professionally uh, and personally because you know yeah. I felt extremely isolated um, and uh, that was that was definitely a moment where I I I think with hindsight now I think those that year I ended up being there three years but that year was quite a sort of life changing period for me as an individual and my personal growth. Being able to speak to amazing people and release their conversations every week is such a pleasure. And it means so much to me that people like you get to listen to this every week. And the fact that you're continuing to listen means even more. But I wanted to ask for a bit more support. I've started a Buy Me A Coffee. You can go onto the link down in the show notes below, click and donate as little or as much as you'd like. It would help me produce better content, keep the editing up, and just in general have better conversations I can travel further and bring you better guests. If this sounds like something you'd like to help me with, the link will be in the show notes below. Again, thank you so much for listening. It's enough already. And so enjoy this episode. Did you find yourself isolating at that point or trying to make, like, trying to like socialize quite a lot to deal with the stress? Um, I didn't have time to socialize. It was honestly, it was long yeah. days. Um, I, I didn't, I knew a few people. I was actually, I moved in with um, a guy called Jamie Richards, who's Dave Richards' son, who was working there as well, who's Dave Richards, the um, the guy that runs ProDrive, um, effectively with Aston Martin. And um, I, I did some social things with him. But in that first year, I just worked my socks off. And I, 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 I mean, I lost a lot of weight. My friends would come over and they'd be like, Jesus, what's, what's happened to you? Like, you're a mess. You know, I was wired. Yeah. I was pumped up and you know right up until the first race was done and delivered in 2000 late 2009 and then I could relax a bit but from the time I started until then um you know there wasn't really any time for socializing it was it was 100% work and uh and it was mm. it was hard yeah I think for the um, the guys listening in the members team we're going to jump a bit more to you know sort of guess guess what you're doing now in terms of the the uh, the, the companies you're working for but for someone that's, you know, working as a marketing manager or a brand currently, what can they do that would make the most of, you know, most of the money they're doing? Where can they, those assets you were talking about earlier, where can they manage those the best? I mean, it varies. I mean, I can only sort of talk from my perspective um, uh, in, in the Formula One world. But, you know, marketing for me is um, is just being creative and being on top of the trends um and it, it's a world that moves really really fast um you know every five minutes there's a new trend or a new thing to jump on the back of and um you know there's a lot around um artificial intelligence at the moment and um uh, and and all the the different ways of using it to to your advantage um there's digital trends you know with things like threads popping up recently what can be done there so it's it's knowing what's hot and, and how to capitalize it, capitalize on it, um, and, and try and think creatively, but more and more of what we're doing is, is digitally led. Um, so, um, mm. it's, it's definitely heading more in that direction. And while the, the hospitality, you know, the event-based marketing is coming back, it hasn't, it hasn't reached the levels that it had pre COVID. So, um, yeah, I, I think you've just got to be adaptable as a marketer and, and creative and think, think, uh, audience first you later because you know your opinion doesn't really matter it's um it's got to be a very data-led um approach not just how you think you would feel about something you know you have to have the data to back it up okay uh and that data is that coming from obviously that's obviously coming from your your points or touch points with the the previous content as well yeah and it's it's also audience data you know there are companies out there that that analyze social media trends and what people are looking at and you know what particular fans of a particular thing follow and where do they go after they've looked at that thing that they're looking at 
and um, you know, it's understanding where your audience lives, what your brand message is that you're dealing with and, and making sure that you, you, you serve them content that they want to see. Um, and, and that has to be through, um, through using the correct data and making sure that you're, you know, you're not serving your audience, something that, that simply isn't up their street. You mentioned AI and for you and your opinion, your opinion, Tim, obviously you can't forecast the future, but if you were going to look at the, you know, the industry you're in now and the next couple of years ahead, what do you think are going to be important to look at? I mean, AI, we're keeping a close eye on. We don't really know yet how it's going to affect our industry. Um, but, um, I'm pretty sure it's here to stay. Um, I mean, things, there's certain flash in the pan things which have come and gone, which, you know, float around our industry like crypto or NFTs. You know, there are still crypto and NFT companies in Formula One. Um, There's a lot that have come Mm -hmm. and gone. Um, There's still an NFT company. They sponsor Williams. They're called Kraken. Um, You know, so these things are still there, but we've not really done too much in that kind of space outside of working with one or two cryptocurrencies to, to support what they're doing. Um, but um, I think the AI thing's really interesting and not just, you know, artificially, not just sort of chat GPT AI, but the the visual AI tools that are out there that are popping up all over the place. Um, there's loads of stuff to take advantage of. So we're, we're looking at one or two projects in the AI space and Web 3.0 that we can try and get moving in the next couple of years because we just don't want to get left behind. I think if, if you're not going to embrace that world um, in five years time, you'll probably wish you had. Tim, what ignited your passion for cars? What ignited my passion for cars? I it probably, I mean, I've I've got to be honest. I'm not a super car fan, even though I work in that world. I'm not a, I'm not the world's biggest car nut. Um, I don't have an engineering mm. bone in my body. Um, I like cars, and I've had one or two fun cars to drive. But um, I guess I'm more about the commercial side, the business behind cars and motorsport, more so than the cars themselves. No, it sounds like obviously looking at the industry you're in and looking at your past and kind of seeing where you've gone is that the people clearly might be more important to you than the cars themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm interested also with like Tim, the the early years, like when you, when you're going to school, like what was that like for you? Where were you, what what position did you grow up in? So, um, I grew up in Surrey and, um, I, uh, went to a, a pretty normal private school until 13 then hopped across to state school. Um, zero ability. I think I left school with five or six GCSEs um, and went to went to college. At this point, no idea what I wanted to do for a career. And then mm. um, after college, went traveling for a year in New, in New Zealand um, and then sort of found myself going through clearing and, and landing a uh, a place in a pretty awful university, um, which was offering a hospitality and business course, um, with a gap with, with a sandwich year. So I could go abroad. And then that was one of those moments where I did my first year at uni, didn't really enjoy it. Went, went away to America for my, my sort of year in industry. And that's when I thought, okay, um, making money is a lot more fun than studying. So, I left university early and that, which I don't condone, it's not for everybody. Um, (laughs) but it worked for me. So I I left university early and then, um, I went into recruitment. I got on a graduate course because I didn't know what else to do. And then fortunately a guy I know, um, had a sports marketing agency and said, come and do a three month internship. Um, and that put me on the path to my current career. And I ended up staying there for six years or so and, and left as a, a shareholder and, and director. Um, and then it, it sort of went on from there, but that was my sort of rather unconventional route into motorsport marketing. Yeah. Um, schools are interesting. Was I, I went from state school in primary to private school and then back from that private school back to a state school. And it's a weird change of atmosphere. Isn't it? You meet all these different people. You have a yeah. different kind of perspective in life. And it really yeah. mixes the kind of people you hang around with as well. I remember my first day at state school. It's sort of um, welded into my brain. I I, I went from um, very very smart. My my prep school was just normal prep school. Then my the, the private school that I went to up until um, thirteen after I left the prep school was very very posh and it was it was proper. And then my first day at state school, I remember walking across the um, like the tennis courts where everyone was hanging out at lunchtime and and just thinking what is this place? Like everyone looked threatening to me. Everyone looked terrifying. There were girls there. Like that was a new experience. It was a real awakening, but, um, 
I adapted pretty quickly and I made some great friends there and um, many of whom have gone on to really amazing things. So um, I'm glad I took that route and I didn't stay the course at, at private school. I'm sure, you know, people love private school and I get it. And it's, um, it's, it's a world of opportunity. But for me, I think it kind of, I needed that, that little clean break and to, to walk into a bit of normality. And what did that kind of give that young Tim then? Cause I know for me that kind of, you know, you experienced both sides of, you know, what the world can be. I think it just gave me that sort of, um, resilience and, and, um, I wouldn't say I was entitled before that, but I was certainly, you know, molly coddled and, and was in a little, you know, sorry bubble. bubble and all of a sudden i was i was out of that bubble and firmly in a place where you know there were fights in the corridors and people would bring dodgy things into school and you know everyone dressed differently to what i was used to and spoke differently i mean i was i spoke completely different to everybody in that school um so it taught me adaptability and and it certainly helped with my soft skills and and gave me the ability to talk to people from different walks of life and and hopefully eventually win mm. them over even if we were completely different and you mentioned that that fear aspect as well like when you said you're intimidated by the you know the effects of stuff obviously that didn't stop you from making friends did it that, that kind of just was a i guess was a new experience i was just a bit quiet i was just you know because it was such a new experience and you know these people were just very different to me so i, I was probably a bit quiet for a couple of years but um you know, adapted to it. And, and like I say, a lot of my, well, most of my, my best friends now are, are the people who I met at that school. So, um, I have no complaints about it. I think it was, it, you know, without any kind of plan, it worked out nicely for me. You mentioned the grades as well as Tim. I know for me, like I wasn't the smartest kid living school. I, I did pretty much, I didn't go to university. It wasn't a, wasn't a plan for me. It wasn't an option. But you mentioned that you weren't going to a great university. Was this like you just kind of fell into? Was it you full of mates? Or was this like a parent thing? That Why did you go to university in the first place? But I guess because I didn't know what else to do. And um, and at that time, um, you know, the early 2000s, it was like, it was just the thing that people did, generally speaking. They they went to university. So I was like, well, if I don't go, I'm a bit of a failure. But, you know, I, I should... I should go. So I went through the clearing process. But, the, you know, the choice of university, which at the time was called the Birmingham College of Food Tourism and Creative Studies. I think now it's Birmingham University College. But I mean, you know, it's not a flash place. It, it was a tower block in Birmingham um, that was accredited by the main university, I think. Um, but it wasn't, it, it was nothing to write home about. You know, you 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 wouldn't look at it and go, cool, that's what a lovely red brick university. You'd look at it and go, well, there, there's a tower, there's a council building in, in Birmingham. So um you know, it was, that was, that was, it wasn't great. It was all right. I, I just felt like I was wasting my time there, but I didn't really know what else to do. Um, and that's when my, my year in America, um, in the middle of that course really probably changed the course of my life. That's interesting. So if, so if I went and you asked that, you know, Tim sitting in that classroom and that in the high rise and I asked him sort of, what did your future look like versus the guy who got back from America? Would you, their answers would be really different, wouldn't they? I think so. Um, I think that the pre-America me would have, would have probably said, I have no idea what, what my life looks like. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just sort of bumbling through and waiting for an opportunity to, to come along. Um, and then I think the post America me would, would be full of drive and ambition thinking, okay, I get it now. Um, and, um, mm. and, and ready to, to, to go into the workforce. And at that point I had no plans to be a consultant or uh, start my own business or anything like that. I think at that point it was, I want to wear a suit. I want to go to London um, and impress my my mum and dad and my mates, um, and um, uh, and and that's what I did. <laughs> so, what what happened to Tim in America? I'm interested because if it's like you, know, you said it's changed, you know, changed your life. So, what was what was happening to Tim then? So, I went out there and I was working in Orlando for um, a company called Lowe's, who own things like um, the Hard Rock Hotel, Portofino Bay Hotel. Um, universal stuff and uh i was i was plonked in a place called the portofino bay hotel which was a very nice five-star hotel modeled after the real portofino and uh i was recreation and events manager which basically meant i had to look after three swimming pools a bunch of staff load of lifeguards some bars and restaurants and make sure everyone was having a good time and you know that, that was pretty much my job but it you know as a young bloke in a different country um English, uh, you know, surrounded by Americans. Um, again, it opened my eyes to a new culture, a new way of living. And 
I think the biggest thing was was the the day I got my first paycheck because you know out there as you probably know the tipping culture is quite good if you if you can convince people that they're having a great time and you can talk to them in, in a certain way they tip you better um and uh although my my salary was low my tips were great and uh I was like okay you know this is good I can I can have fun and I can talk to people and I can make money and when I started making money, I was really excited and thought, well, this is it. You know, this is, this is what I want to do. I don't want to be in university spending money. I want to be out there in the workplace making money. So that it was a game changer for me. I had a brilliant time. Absolutely loved it. And, uh, and came back after a year and then quit university and, and blabbed my way onto a, a, a recruitment consultancy, uh, graduate scheme with Michael Page. So it's hospitality as an industry is weird because it rewards you for being nice to people that you not, might not necessarily like. And I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad skill set because I've been doing that for the yeah. past five years and I'm still not sure <laughs> I'm coming out the best person. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird because I, I, hospitality, I, I, I thank for bringing out my show. It's one of those things where, you know, the people that, you know, like you say, you, you talk to them differently, you speak to them differently. And I, I'm one of those people that says, you know, everyone, I think everyone needs to do a bit, a bit of hospitality in their life. Just, yeah, just yeah. to see what it's like. But yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, it's good fun. Tim, when did you, when did the opportunity for motorsport come about? Was it, obviously it was after the recruitment. So I, I worked in recruitment for about a year um, and it was going all right, actually. Didn't mind it. I uh, didn't love it, but it, it gave me that opportunity to put a suit on and go to London and, you know, sit in an office in London Bridge in Victoria and have a nice time. And then um, I was playing cricket one afternoon for a local village team and my my uh, longtime family friend, Jonathan Bedansky, who ran a sports marketing agency called BSL, he uh, said, what are you up to? And I was like, I'm pretty bored doing recruitment. He was like, well, come and do three months with me. Um, and let's see what happens. If you like it, great. You know, we'll see what we can do. And if not, then, you know, no harm done. You can go back to doing whatever you want to do. Um, so that, that was the end, that was my entry into the world of motorsport. Cause he had, he had a client, which was Panasonic. Panasonic at the time were involved with Toyota who would end up in formula one. Um, and, uh, so that was my entry to sports marketing, formula one, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it was good. I, I kicked off, did my three months probation past that and then spent the next six years traveling around on the F1, um, calendar and, uh, going to various races, activating various partnerships and having a very good time. I can imagine if it's the same as the, uh, the Epsom, <laughs> Epsom journey, this, these parties sound pretty cool. It was a good, it was a good time of, of life cause it was pre financial crash. So it's 2005 to 2007, eight ish, um, uh, before it all went pear shaped. And, um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Like we were staying in cool hotels, great parties, great. F- I mean, it was, that's when it was glamorous. Like I, I felt lucky to have that job at the time. I was like, this is cool. You know, I'm doing fun. I'm doing fun work with fun people traveling the world with pretty much no expense spared and, um, and just having a great time. And then obviously 2007, 2008 crash, and everything changed and and it became a much more prudent place where people did pay attention to their budgets and it, it became more of a, a serious job. Yeah, no, I unfortunately was, un- <laughs> I think I was, I wouldn't know what job was if you asked me in 2008, I was about seven years old. So unfortunately I didn't get to uh, experience that. <laughs> but um, no, but Tim, you mentioned earlier, I, I, think I, or I, actually, I forgot to ask you, but you mentioned in, impressing mum and dad and, and did the, did the recruitment job do that? Was it something that, you know, is that something you wanted to do as well? Is that something you needed? You felt like you needed to do. I had I had that desire to, you know, put on a suit, impress mum and dad, get a, you know, get on the train, do the commuter thing, and um, and yeah, it served its purpose. I feel, you know, I did it. I I scratched that itch, um, but it quickly wore off. You know, the, the very early mornings into town on a crammed train, mm. um, you know, it 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 was all right. But it, like you say, I think it was it was a tick box exercise. I did it um, was pleased to get out of it in the end. And then, you know, during my time. Yeah. Um, was this new, the time you're working at right formula? Was this when these sort of like feelings came about and you were sort of had these ideas about working for yourself? No, it was, it, it, it was before that it was, uh, it was, so I, I, I went to the middle East in 2009 with this company, stayed there till 2012. And then in 2012, my girlfriend at the time, now wife said to me, right, we're, we're going to go home. We're going to go back to the UK. Do we stay with BSL or do we 
try doing our own thing. So we, we went home and quit our jobs and started, um, a company called Sylvie sports, which is still around today, which, um, was effectively a limited company, a vehicle for me to do consultancy through. Um, and it allowed me to be sort of entrepreneurial, I suppose, and, and start trying different things and, you know, we did stuff at the London Olympics and we quickly hired over 50 staff to work with this during uh, that sort of Olympic year. Um, and, um, and it sort of snowballed from there and we, we did loads of interesting fun projects and got involved in driver management, managed an F1 driver and Jamie Chadwick, who's gone on to big things and various other people through Sylvie sports. Um, so it just gave me an opportunity to to try different things, different ways of making money, um, all in motorsport generally, apart from the Olympics. Um, and then that took me up to probably, uh, 2015, 16, 17 ish. And then I, I started doing some consultancy with right formula and enjoyed it there a lot. So stayed for quite a while, maybe five years, um, consulting for them across loads of different brands, um, in golf and formula one. And so, I guess the, the time spent in like the UAE, UAE and Saudi Arabia was that was that a difficult different culture shock to you know work in the UK and is you your girlfriend at the time did she work for BSL as well was that how you guys met Yeah so um it was a culture shock at the beginning but I got used to it quite quickly and ended up really loving living in the UAE um and since as you say I, I've spent quite a bit of time in Saudi as well which has been interesting um I'm very used to the Middle East now it feels quite homely like when I go back to Dubai or Abu Dhabi I feel very very relaxed there um but yeah she was working for the same company it, it was actually we met because she was working in china at the chinese grand prix for force india formula one team at the time um i was in dubai there was a big volcano so this would have been 2010 it was a big volcano that covered most of europe with hot ash and all that stuff and and all the airlines went down so my boss called and said, there's this girl, she's stuck in China. She's going to try and get to you in the Middle East and you have to escort her home um, and bring her back to the UK. So I was like, oh, okay. So she, she, um, she managed to get to the UAE. I met her for a drink in, in Dubai to say, you know, hi, don't worry, I'll look after you. I'll get you back to the UK. And we spent four days getting back to the UK via Nice, driving up through France to Paris, a couple of days in Paris because we couldn't go anywhere, then Eurostar home. And along that journey, um, we did, you know, open but top bus tours and nice dinners and, you know, f funny little hire convertible hire cars and basically um decided, well, this is quite fun. Um, and we both independently told our parents, we think we've met the person we're gonna marry. And then um got home on the Friday. Um moved in together on the Monday and now we've got three kids, a house, a dog and uh, and a chaotic, crazy life. I think you guys win the award for the world's best and longest first date. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> the, tra the traveling, the, the week long yeah. traveling kind of did it. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's how you do it folks. Just, just get, get lost across Europe and you'll be fine. One big, one big volcano will solve all your problems. And so is she your, is she your business partner now? Is, do you guys still, you know, still have that working relationship as well as obviously the family? Yeah, we do. So, um, she has a, a wedding business called white button weddings. And th that's the reason why we bought the bar. So we bought an old horse box, did it up and put the bar at her weddings as an extra revenue stream. Um, so we ran that together and then, um, she's gonna, she's gonna head up our new, um, super uh super yacht and um private plane booking company mm. which i think we're going to call no one steal this it's genius um plane sailing which i think is brilliant um so yeah, that's great. we're going to launch that soon i mean we're, it's quite fun so we we've got some business already um but we need to you know get the website up and running and um you know do all the all the all the usual stuff but um but it's, it's started as an, an entity sort of in the background through Sylvie Sports at the moment. And we're going to move it across to um, to the new entity soon. And so all this, you know, this, I guess, well, I guess you'd call it entrepreneurialism between these two of you. This is something that obviously you all, you've either called like motor mouth, you, stuff you're doing with W2F1. You explain to the people listening, maybe like how much stuff you actually do now, because it's, it's a long list. 
there's a big focus on the consultancy work I'm doing with the race media who own WTF one. Mm. Um, we launched with, uh, well, Andrew Vandenberg approached me probably about a year ago now and said, I've had an idea for a talent management business, um, in formula one. Um, are you interested? And I was like, yeah, why not? Um, so he and I started up with a, another chap called Matt Whittam. Um, we started up WTF one talent, which is, a um, it, 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 we manage content creators in formula one, basically people who have been doing what they've been doing, um, out of their bedroom, you know, making TikTok videos and instas and reels. And, um, we put a call to arms out to say who wants to be managed or considered to be managed. And we had a huge response from people all over the world. And we signed up six initially, um, from the UK. I think we were one from Germany. Um, and they were our sort of founding roster of creators and we we developed them and grew them and started making money for them and then we've grown the roster now um we've we officially launched about six months ago seven months ago we're up to 25 on the roster now um from uk usa brazil mexico ireland uh india lots of different places and we basically yeah. give them the tools they need to go from being a bedroom creator to a sustainable business that they can grow um and we create partnerships for them with F1 brands and F1 teams. We give them training, um, give them workshops with industry people um, and support their growth. Just give them the tools they need to, to amplify what they're doing and try and make content creators more um, uh, accepted in Formula One paddocks around the world. So um, it's, it's good fun. So that, that's what I'm doing with them. And I do a lot of work with the race just from a commercial perspective, helping with, with brand deals. Um, and then Motormouth, I have the, the Motormouth app, website, and podcast, which is all about Formula One and other forms of motorsport. Um, we've done about 180, 190 episodes on the podcast. And, and the app and the website is just full of news. And you can sign up and chat to other people about motorsport and so on. Um, mm. And off the back of that, we've launched a, um, uh, a podcast network called the Motormouth, uh, called Motormouth Media, which is very recently launched we've got three shows on there at the moment my show the motor mouth podcast a show called the omg moto gp podcast and the paddle movement podcast um mark Priestley's bringing his show across to the network we've got a show with nikki shields launching next year um we i think we've got another four or five shows scheduled to launch in january and february so we should be up to sort of 10 or 15 shows by the end of q1 um and uh so that's a lot of fun um and that's just a network and a production company for for podcasts um and uh and the rest of it is is you know things like brokering deals you know the, the hospitality the boats the yachts um sponsorship consulting for brands when it's needed um and i think that's i think that's it for now at the moment yeah. um do you, do you sleep at which is enough during any of this no, no, sleeping. No, no. I mean, I, I mean, it's sleeping's difficult anyway with three kids who are quite young. So, yeah. um, I haven't really slept for eight years, so I'm just rolling with it. You know, um, I get enough sleep. I mean, I, I go, I go yeah. to bed quite early. I mean, I get, I get to bed at half 10, you know, I wake up when the first child rolls in at about five and then it's, it's out for uh, the dog walk and, and away we go. <laughs> Because I'm just, I'm just thinking. I'm, I'm looking at this and hearing all this sort of stuff, and I'm just thinking, how does, how does one person build this? But I'm guessing you've got teams in place, and you've, you've obviously, this, this has not just been a year. This has taken over what the last sort of twelve, fifteen. I mean, it's a, a lot of the time. It's just me. I mean, I, I, I flip between things. I run a lot of things alongside each other. Some of them are not heavy lift, though. You know, things like the the Motormouth app and website is is fairly automated. You know, it's like a uh, it uses some very light AI, um, and, um, it, you know, it updates itself. Um, I work with one other guy on it, Frank, who's a techie guy who helps make sure that it, you know, stays live and that the, the algorithms work and all the rest of it. The podcasting side of things, um, is not heavy lift either anymore. It was at the beginning, but now because I've done it for so long, you know, I can research, find a guest interview, post-production distribute, really quickly so that's not like a major mm. headache um and um and you know the the deals a lot of it is deal making you know which is can be high reward and and you get a lot of no's um but you know often it's a few phone calls or a few emails or connecting the right people with the right thing um 
and a lot of it is just through my network, you know, just being a middleman or a facilitator, obviously the things like WTF one talent take up a lot more time, but there is a team there, you know, I work with other people on that. Um, so it's, yeah, it's some things, a, a time, a time, um, killers and others are, are quite quick and easy things just to spin through. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's always been that way. The stuff I've done generally, I'll have one sort of meaty thing that I'm involved with mm. a lot of the week. And then there might be three or four or five other things, which, uh, I can fit in around that, that, that will make new revenue streams, but, but don't, I, I mean, I'm still only working a nine to five day. I mean, I'm not doing anything kind of outrageous and quite often less than that. Cause I'll do school pickups or whatever. So yeah, it's, it's not, it sounds like a lot, but it, it, the reality is I've, I guess I've learned to juggle things quickly and efficiently. And it sounds like making deals is, you know, kind of at the heart of what you do. And just, I mean, just yeah. for me, actually just being quite selfish now, what do you think, you know, if you could pick three things that go into a deal or how you structure a deal, I mean, what can I learn from you about deal making that would, would I, I could apply to my life? I think the most important thing with, for me personally, for, for making deals happen is the network that I've got. Um, it's very rare that I have to cold call somebody. Um, I can't remember the last time actually I had to, you know, cold call a person or a company. Usually if an opportunity comes around or something there that I can sell, whether it's a, you know, a yacht or whether it's um, a sponsorship or whatever it might be. Generally speaking, I'll know someone who I can take that to, who will either know someone they can introduce me to, or they'll just take it themselves. Um, so I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that if you can create yourself a good network, you know, you've got, you've got a customer base right there. Um, so I think that would be my thing. I think, I think if I could tell myself that, you know, when I was 20, I'd be like, just get your network, just, you know, find your niche and grow your network in that niche and, and the, and the money will come. Interesting. And it's just sort of when you say those, when you say building a network, what is that? that network for you, what does is, what is building a network mean, mean for Tim? I suppose a few things. Um, it's getting out there and meeting people and talking a lot. Um, mm. I get a loads of meetings. I meet loads of interesting people. And if you get on with those people, those conversations tend to go somewhere, not necessarily a, a sale, but they might, you know, oh, I know a person you should speak to. You should go and have a chat with, with that person. And then that leads to something else. And, um, and, and, using LinkedIn a lot. I, I smash LinkedIn constantly. You know, it's, it's my, that is my social network of choice. Um, so I've built up a good network there, um, attending events and conferences and not being afraid to walk up to strangers and ask them what they're doing and, you know, where they fit in and also just leveraging contacts that you've met over the years, you know, different jobs, different consultancies, different clients, you know, people you've worked with along the, along the years who, you know, have left their jobs and gone on to other things. I've literally just done a bit of business with a friend of mine who left, who we worked at a company together. Um, he left, set up his own business, super successful. Um, and we've just done a, a deal together this week, actually. And that's just through being friends and just, you know, yeah. working closely together, keeping in touch and, you know, what can we do in the future? Let's make sure, you know, we help each other out. It's just, I think it's, there's the being a sort of serial consultant or freelancer you meet a lot of other like-minded people and everyone's just trying to make a buck and have some fun doing it. So if you can help each other out and you'll get to your goal quicker, then, then we'll do that. So my network's very close, very tight. Um, and, um, yeah, ev ev the people I surround myself with want, um, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not plonkers. They're nice people. Um, yeah. and we'll always try and help each other out. So I think, yeah, having that network is key. No, it's, it's interesting because something I'm looking at now is like, how can I make money out of my network? If I, as small as, as small as it is, and actually looking at them making those deals. And it's something I've read, actually a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to um one of the guys that mentors me about sort of, you know, what can I do with this podcast, even or what I can do with a business idea or and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a world that I, I should probably spend more time in, to be honest. Well, I mean, the podcasting thing's interesting because, you know, I've found the podcasting a relatively easy thing to monetize. I mean, even when we were very new to the podcasting world, we would, we would do brand deals almost straight off, straight out the bat, straight out the door. Um, and now we've reached a certain, um, 
listenership, we've turned on the programmatic advertising and it's just free money. I mean, it's not huge amounts, but you know, I couldn't believe it. I was like, turn on, turn on the programmatic advertising. Boom. You've just got money coming in for doing nothing but talking. Um, and then yeah. when you supplement that with direct brand deals, um, which when you think about it, isn't rocket science. You know, if you're doing a, a podcast about um, motorsport and you go and talk to a company that make high performance brakes and you've got an audience of X amount, it's kind of a no brainer, you know, for not very much money, yeah. they get access to a big audience that's an endemic to their brand. Why wouldn't you put that in your marketing mix? So, um, you know, things like the podcasting is a, is a very good way to make money if you know how to, but like anything, if you don't know, you don't know. Um, and sometimes you need to be told before you can learn how to do it. Yeah, because I'm getting sponsorships. Like I, I, I try to run through the podcast, but I'll be honest with everyone that's listening. I don't charge for it. It's something that I use as a, maybe I should charge, but it's a free sort of slot because I, I know I don't have the numbers to support that. So it's kind of like those deals are being made, but it's kind of a no brainer for the person anyway because it's free advertisement for, for full stop, regardless yeah. of how many listens they get on it. So yeah, yeah, but I mean, it's even if you've got a small audience, you know, we we did a deal with the company that sell hospitality tickets. Um, and we charged them, um, I, I think it was, it was ju probably just shy of 10 grand, something like that. And, um, we said to them, give us our, give us a custom URL so we can track what we're doing and, um, a discount code. And we did that and they sold, um, five or so tickets pretty quickly, but they were high value tickets. So they, they made their money back easily. Um, very, very yeah. quickly, even though we had a small audience, um, and, and met, turned a profit off the back of our discount code because, you know, a very small handful of people decided to buy some, some tickets. So, you know, even if you've got a small audience, you can still monetize them. Um, it, and, and sometimes a small audience is an, is a very engaged audience. So, um, you know, I think, I think podcasts and podcast owners, uh, uh, often missing a trick because there's, there's so much opportunity out there. And this is why we've started a podcast network. Because if we can get, you know, many millions of downloads a month, it's extremely valuable. That's good to know. Um, it just turns money-wise how much you are charging for those tickets. But no, yeah, Tim. Um, in the future, I mean, you mentioned earlier you got you got three young kids and a wife. Does does this ever stop? Do you think you're retiring, or are you happy to keep going? Like, what is your opinion on the future? I'd love to retire at some point, but I don't know when that's going to happen. I mean, it's it, it's it's difficult. I mean, you you know, COVID screwed me as much as it did other people. You know, I've still got debts to pay off from COVID um, as many people have. Um, I've got, um, I've got more ambitions, um, more things I want to achieve. Um, I'm only 42. I've got plenty of time. I, I just want to keep doing what I do. I enjoy it. Like I, I have fun. I wouldn't want to stop working. I yeah. really like what I do. Um, and, um, you know, it doesn't feel like a real job to me. I feel like I'm just having a nice time, you know, talking to nice people and hopefully making a living out of it. And, um, yeah, no, no plans to stop. I just keep going, keep, keep doing what I'm yeah. doing. And, and I honestly, I couldn't tell you what I'll be doing next year. No idea. It, it tends to change year on year. There are one or two consistent themes, but more often than not, you know, new opportunities come along pretty much every year. And, and, not necessarily doing a different thing that it might just be you know, like within the race and that network that we've got there, you know, it could be something new that we decide to do at the race. Like the talent business was a new thing we did this year and maybe next year we'll come up with something else. So it's very varied, but I've no plans to, to change. And out of interest, do, do the kids know what, what that does for a living? Do they have any idea what, what you do as well? Uh, kind of, they, they know it's something to do with formula one cars and they are big fans and, um, my middle son has been to the F1 with me, so he gets it. Um, and uh, they don't know exactly. They know that I disappear and have a microphone in front of my face for an hour every couple of days. Um, uh, you know, don't go and disturb daddy while he's on, got his headphones on. Um, but yeah, they kind of get it. But they're still quite young. So it's, you know, they don't really understand. Um, but um, they know it involves cars. What is that like for you being away from them? You, you know, you say, you, you know, you disappear for a couple of days or a couple of weeks and, and coming back as the, you know, what's that like for you? I don't do it so much anymore. I used to a lot at the beginning. Um, now I might do three or four races a year, which isn't too bad. You know, it's like a few days at a time. We tend to go on a, 
Thursday or Wednesday or Thursday. And we, we often come home before the race. Uh, we went to Austin and we actually flew home on race day. We didn't bother staying for the yeah. race because everyone's too busy to have a meeting and you know, that's why we're there. So why bother? Um, so, uh, it's not too bad. I don't have to, I don't travel too much. I try not to. Um, so I'm at home most of the time. Um, so I, I haven't, I, fortunately I don't have to worry too much about not seeing the, the kids and the family. Um, I, I, yeah, keep, keep the travel to a minimum. Before this, you know, you, you we're talking off, off, off camera and you said, you know, you're a very confident person. I'm just wondering if that's been the consistent theme up until the point we were stressed and onwards. Is that something that the stress taught you? I mean, what is your is your um, you know, mental health been like through your career as well? Uh, pretty strong on the mental health side, although I think I, I was not a confident um, kid or teenager. Um, it's something it's grown. I think I probably didn't find my... Um, my confidence as an individual and as a professional until I was probably in my mid thirties. So, you know, fairly recently. Um, mm. but now I, I, I definitely feel, I feel very comfortable in my own skin. Now I feel comfortable with my work and knowing and feel comfortable knowing that I know what I'm talking about. So I, I don't get nervous anymore or overawed by individuals or, um, you know, I've been around long enough now to feel very comfortable in what I'm doing, um, I still push, you know, push myself out of my comfort zone, but I do it in the safe and the knowledge that if I fail, I don't mind. Um, so I've, I've, it's definitely something that I've learned along the way confidence and, and yeah, now I feel very, it's very rare that I feel insecure, um, or, or nervous in any kind of scenario. So I can look forward to that at 30 because <laughs> at the moment I, I don't know whether I'm shooting up or down left or right, but we're just going to go with it anyway. And see what uh, it's, it'll come. Uh, but yeah. I, I, I think it's a boy thing. Like boys are, boys are rubbish. You know, I think girls, girls, um, obviously mature, generally speaking, girls, I think mature quicker than boys. And, and, um, me and many of my friends, we, it took us a long time to not just calm down stop acting like idiots and, you know, boozing too much and, being plonkers it took us a long time to to settle down and you know have families and do things right and learn to be um happy and safe in your own skin and and know what you're talking about at work it, it does take time mm. um, and tim we, we, we're getting to the point of the podcast where we ask you know sort of five any, any questions um and the first one of those would be and i know you said you weren't a massive car fan so we'll see how this goes but your ultimate three car carriage I'm, I'm not a massive car fan but i can appreciate a good car and so i have I have, I did think about this, uh, Harry. So I've gone for yeah. my first ever car, which at the time I loved, which I ended up crashing into Billy Matthews wall was a Citroen AX. It was a four speed manual gearbox with wind up windows and a cassette player, six by nine speakers on the back parcel shelf cut into it. Uh, wicked little car, terrible at cornering, but it was, it was my first car. So I would, I would love to have that back. Um, the second one would be, I bought when I, when I got to director level in my, at my first company, um, I went out and bought myself a Honda S 2000, which I loved. And I was really young at the time. And I was like, this is, this is cool. Like I've, I've got the roof down. I'm young, I'm free and single. And I look really cool. A lot of people mocked me. You said it was a hairdresser's car, but if you know cars, that is not a hairdresser's car. It's a wicked car. Um, but, um, so I, I would have that back and I, I really regret selling it now because they're somewhat of a collector's item. Um, and then I would get a Porsche 911 GT3 RS because they're just insane and i was lucky enough to drive some porsches recently around um a test track in germany and they just they're incredible bits of machinery and i tried the electric one and i tried just the normal you know proper one yeah. and uh it was such an experience i was like i've got up i think maybe i'll i want to aspire once the kids have stopped draining my finances maybe i'll try and get myself a porsche 911 <laughs> Yeah, uh, once you get them out of the house, maybe I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> replace yeah. replace them with a with a GT three. Yeah, uh, there you go. Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, I think a Porsche is one of those things. Um, everyone seems to mention one in that list. So yeah. Uh, and the next one is you have one car to drive on any road or track. Where would you go, and what would you take? I would drive an F one car. 
Um, I think, you know, that would be the ultimate driving experience. And I would drive it at Spa because that was the first race I ever went to in 2005. Um, I think it was one of Fernando Alonso's first races as well. Um, so I would, I would get in an F1 car and drive around Spa. Amazing circuit. I'd love to drive through Eau Rouge, you know, flat out mm. with all that downforce. Um, so yeah, that would be my, my ultimate. Would you go for a modern or a modern F1 car? Like a, like a retro Ooh. F1 or a classic? That's a good question. Good question. I, I, oh, I do, I'd want to, I'd probably do, oh, I don't know, maybe three different, but I'd probably do an old school, you know, like something like James Hesketh's, um, James Hunt's Hesketh, you know, Formula One car or one of his old McLarens or something like that just to see what that felt like. And then I'd probably do the pre-turbo era, um, you know, when the cars actually made a proper noise, um, mm. you know, sort of 2007, 2008 t- sort of time. And then and then I'd go one of the, the the latest cars just to see how ridiculous those machines are that they drive now because they are bonkers. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd be greedy and take all three. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this, uh, yeah, I, I bang on this about this, but this podcast is, you know, it's, it's here to, to show people what is possible with it, you know, the passion and love for cars. Um, and this next one is, I've changed it actually. This is the first one. And it's, what do you think your purpose is in your, in your career? Um, yeah, I saw this one when you, you sent over the notes and I, th- I thought about it for a minute and, um, I came up with two things and, um, one is to be happy because I just don't see the point in doing a job that you're not happy in. Um, mm. and, uh, the second one is to have fun. I think, you know, it's, I know it's easy to say, and some people don't have the luxury for whatever reason to have their dream job or, you know, whatever. But I think there are, you, you create opportunities and luck in life. And if you strive hard enough for them, you can get there. And, and I, honestly i'm so happy doing what i'm doing i find it fun every single day and um i i think you know life is so short why not do something that you enjoy so um my purpose with my job is to is to have fun and do it with a smile on my face and and make sure i'm happy doing it and the day that i'm not happy doing it i'm gonna go and do something else that's a great answer (laughs) perfect then um um, and tim what is the advice you give to a young person or yourself just starting out today? Well, the network thing, I think like I spoke about earlier. So mm-hmm. I think that would be one thing, like start building your network straight away. Um, be punctual because there's nothing worse than late people. That drives me up the wall. Work hard. Like you, you just can't do anything without hard work unless you're extremely lucky or you have multimillionaire parents or you win the lottery. You're going to have to work hard to get ahead of everybody else. Um, and I think hard work is in short supply. Um, be creative, be tough and resilient, you know, back yourself, um, listen to others when, um, you feel they have something of value to say, um, and take in what you, what you think is valuable and disregard what isn't, um, trust your gut. The amount of times I I wish I'd trust my gut and, and, you know, followed it, um, get out of your comfort zone. Um, I think it's important to, to push yourself and challenge yourself. And, uh, and, and I guess finally don't chase the money. I, I think too many people chase the money. Like when I, when I consult for agencies, a lot of the young, younger people are, are so focused on promotion and where's the next pay rise rather than I'm going to make myself the best in this business and that will come. Um, mm. so I'd say, don't chase the money, do, do what you love, do it passionately, do it well. And, and trust me, the money will come. And the last question, Tim, what do you love most about motorsport? The people, um, you know, it's motorsport is a really small industry. Um, and there's a, there's, you know, I, th- I don't know what the number is, 40, 40,000 people or something work in the motorsport industry in the UK, there or thereabouts. It's a small, it's relatively small, and it, but it's got a huge output and they're good people. There's a lot of really great people that work in the industry and it's fun, you know, without those people life would be boring. So I, I enjoy the people behind the sport. Um, and, and, you know, talking business with them all, it's fun. So, um, yeah, I think that would be it. Uh, oh, well, Tim, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. So, uh, yeah, thank you for giving your, your words of wisdom as well. Pleasure. If you made it towards the end of this podcast, I want to thank you. It means so much to me that you'd spend your time listening to what our guests have to say. You may have learned something from this and I'd love to hear it. 
And what I learned is that deal making is crucial to having a successful career in motorsport. And I can see how it will play a huge day-to-day role in our lives. Imagine the people you can meet, the influence you could have, and the money you could earn if you knew what make if you knew what deals to make when. So with that being said, I'm Harry and this is the Ignition Podcast. Now I ask you a tiny favour. If you could share this podcast with the petrol head in your life, the podcast will grow, reach more people, and we will be able to help all car enthusiasts do more with their passion.